Hello and welcome to the latest Pulmonary Rehab Assembly podcast. Um, my name is Claire Nolan and I'm a member of the Web Committee and I'm joined by Dr. Anne-Marie Russell, who's a postdoc senior clinical research fellow at Imperial College London in the UK. And what we're going to talk about today is patient reported outcome measures or PROMs. So Anne-Marie, I wonder if you could uh, let us know to start, what is a PROM? Hi, thank you, Claire. Thank you for inviting me to talk about a subject that's uh, very close to my heart. So um, PROM, uh, as an abbreviation, I think can be a little bit um, uh, confusing because in the UK we tend to talk about PROMs. Um, Australians tend to talk about PROMs, but in the US it's often referred to as a PRO, a P-R-O. Um, but a, a PROM per se is a patient-reported outcome measure. So when we talk about PROMs, we're thinking about the measure itself. Um, and that would be something that would measure a patient's health status or their health-related quality of life. And uh, it's usually at a single point in time, and the data is usually collected through the um, administration of a self-completed questionnaire, uh, and the patient may or may not have some written guidance with that. Um, and the questionnaires can be given electronically or uh, on hard copy. Uh, and I think we're increasingly, certainly in the UK, with the NHS digitalisation, seeing a growth of PROMs being administered electronically um, so that they can be uh, cumulatively mapped to our, our hospital episode statistics. And these tend to be known as EPROMs. That's great. And so just to clarify, do PROMs just measure health-related quality of life or health status, or do they have a broader remit, for example, measuring things like readiness to change? Um, so uh, PROMs can measure uh, quality of life per se. Um, so quality of life is not necessarily uh, health-related. That could be... In, uh, uh, that could include um, where we live, how we live, um, what we do uh, for for pleasure. Um, quality of life as a, as a concept is more around life factors such as family circumstances, finances, housing, uh, etc. Um, health-related quality of life that we tend to be more interested in um, is a focus on personal health status. Um, and that's a health status that may be influenced by a physical or a mental health condition. PROMs would also um, measure well-being, um, which is, is, is perhaps um, a sort of subjective uh, measure of a physical or emotional state, how someone is, is feeling and functioning. Um, and then specifically, PROMs can measure functional status. Uh, so in that regard, it's looking at an individual's performance of um, or ability to perform a specific task uh, or a role uh, or an activity, such as going to work or playing sports or, or gardening or, or housework. If you were particularly interested in looking at a patient's readiness to change, um, you would need to uh, use a patient activation measure uh, rather than a PROM, but a PROM would probably be complementary. That's really clear, actually. So PROMs have actually a huge, uh, huge remit, but obviously still needs to be focused at the end of the day. And can you tell me why measuring the patient experience is so important? Um, so patient experience, um, certainly within our healthcare system, is 
very closely aligned with the um, quality of care domains of patient safety and clinical effectiveness. And I suspect that's the same in other healthcare systems throughout the world. And if we're thinking about experience, we might be thinking about collecting patient-reported experience measures. So this is a PREM, and PREMs are complementary but different to PROMs, uh, patient-reported outcome measures. And so PREMs would focus more on the experience of care, such as dignity and respect. Um, they would uh, focus on information and, and timeliness, a person's experience of a, of a health service, um, and, and their experience of healthcare professionals, whereas PROMs would map to the quality of care domains of effectiveness and safety. And so when using PROMs and PROMs together, they are quite complementary. Um, and we're seeing, certainly within the UK, uh, increasing need to use both uh, PROMs and PREMs, but PREMs particularly uh, for people with long-term conditions, uh, which are, are very costly, and often people with long-term conditions have multimorbidities. And if we can understand more about their experience of care, uh, particularly for those in economically deprived groups where severity of disease is, is greater, um, then we have metrics that help us to not only inform care at an individual level, but we can influence healthcare in the community, uh, and that will, would in turn impact on the patient-reported outcome uh, metrics that we gather as well. And so what you're saying is if we combine PROMs and PREMs, we gain insight into the patient, but it also benefits healthcare professionals and health services. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thinking about your previous question, perhaps you should include the PAM as well. So the outcome, <laughs> the experience and the activation. <laughs> and if we delve a little bit deeper now, can you tell me a little bit about the generic and disease specific PROMs and how you choose the right one? Um, Yes, um, so in, in terms of, um, uh, of choosing the right one, so a, a generic um, health status measure uh, is, is probably known uh, or historically was known as a quality of life scale. Um, it's, got, it's usually got a fairly wide scope um, and it's often um, got better utility when you're uh, looking at a, a healthy population. Um, so you might be wanting to gather data on uh, physical symptoms or you might have to measure impairment. Um, you may want information on, on disability and, or a combination of those along with quality of life. And so um, we could probably describe those more as, uh, as health status. Um, usually with generic health status, with generic health status measures, they would carry uh, an implicit assumption that poorer health scores indicate poorer quality of life. Um, when you're look, thinking about perception, that night might not necessarily be true. Um, and an example of a generic health measure would be the um, SS. Uh, 36 of a short form health survey, um, the SF36 would be uh, perceived as a, a generic health status measure, um, and they they can be um, they can be useful, but they can miss aspects of health status uh, if you're wanting particularly to delve into a specific condition. Um, and so, so sometimes they may lack the sensitivity to detect subtle changes if you really want to hone in on a specific symptom. Um, but of course, it, it would depend on the question you were you were asking. Um, and then other um, other measures uh, 
uh, that you would might think of a, a preference-based or utility measure. So they, these are um, measures that are relevant to wide patient populations and as such allow for a utility value to be assigned to a health state that the patient describes. And so they're useful when you're looking for both um, a clinical and economic appraisal. And so an example of a preference-based measure would be something like the visual analog scale. And again, that can be used in combination with a generic measure. And we then have symptom-specific measures or condition-specific measures. And they tend to um, assess an impairment due to a specific symptom or a specific condition within a defined patient group. And they're particularly valuable in clinical trials when you're looking at the impact of an intervention. It may be pharmacological or non-pharmacological intervention on a target symptom or on a target condition. Uh, so, for example, the, the modified um, uh, MRC, Medical Research Council, breathlessness scale, um, is a, a, a symptom measure that we're all familiar with, and that measures impairment of, of breathlessness. And I guess thinking about whether you um, want to use a, a generic or, or condition-specific um, measure, um, you might think that condition-specific um, measures um, tend to be um, in terms of validity, reliability, and sensitivity, they would be better than generic instruments in, in capturing that detail if you're really wanting to hone down. But if you're wanting a more general overview, um, then a, gener a generic measure may be adequate. But sometimes there's benefit in using both, particularly if you want to think about a specific group of patients but compare um, the health in those patient populations, uh, possibly with different conditions uh, over time. Thank you. That's really comprehensive. Can you tell me about how PROMs are developed and validated for clinical use? Are there specific guidelines to help researchers or is there a gold standard approach? Um, the methodology has changed over time and really the industry surrounding PROMs uh, has um, grown exponentially as well. Uh, developing a new patient reported outcome measure takes time if it's thorough and if it's patient-centered. So for example, uh, the instrument that I developed, which is the IPF, the idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis uh, specific uh, PROM, uh, was, um, uh, was my PhD work, which was developed over five years as a part-time PhD. Um, and so if you really want to use um, patient-centered methodologies, you want to really capture patient's experience of a condition or a symptom, then you need to use a mixed methods approach. So you're starting out with qualitative approaches to generate descriptors, but you need to have an awareness of what's in the literature. Um, and then you need to do um, uh, generate I items uh, and then reduce them using psychometric approaches. And so as the science has evolved, um, the, there isn't a specific approach. There is very much discussion uh, within the specialism with healthcare professionals and psychometricians to think about what our gold standard approach should be. 
and I would say uh, a textbook that would guide you through the process, which is fantastic, is one by uh, Fayez and, and McKinn um, on quality of life. And that really is a step approach uh, that would talk through um, the, some qualitative aspects and psychometrics. And there's also a couple of courses within the UK now, which are fantastic, that, that focus on instrument development as well. Um, but I guess I better not promote those, uh, particularly as they're not at my university. Um, and so I think in the literature it's possible to find gold standard approaches. But what I would say in terms of PROM development, I worry that we're possibly reaching a bit of saturation. I think that PROMs make a very nice PhD project. And sometimes we're ending up with too many PROMs and therefore we're diluting what is used in clinical practice. And so to be a responsible community, I think we have to really stop and think and reevaluate um, what do we need, what have we got, what can we do with what we've got if it isn't quite perfect, and possibly think about modifying existing PROMs for use uh, rather than diluting um, that, that pool even more. And if for anyone who is interested in looking at instruments, there is a fantastic resource uh, developed by the Matthew Trust called ProQualid. And if you look on there, you'll find about um, uh, 1,600 different instruments across conditions. But that is a phenomenal number. So I would, I would urge anyone listening to this possibly not to think about developing a new PROM, but to talk to people who've already developed instruments. And if you don't think there's one out there that's specifically going to answer the questions you're asking, work with those um, in the specialism to look at, at modification. Um, and, and the other thing is, it really does take a lifetime to truly validate a patient-reported outcome measure. I think that claims to validity are often made in haste and that really we need to talk about validity in different populations, uh, in different contexts, um, and make sure that our claim to validity is related to that and that we're not inferring validity in other populations, in other contexts where the, the instrument may just not perform the same. You've succinctly explained what the challenges of undertaking this type of research are and also what the future holds for pre-ROMs in the research environment. But what about the, the clinical environment? Where do you see PROMs going? Um, I mean, certainly we need to have uh, PROMs in both clinical practice and research. I see that... Um, PROMs can be of great value for patients. At, at the end of the day, we're measuring something that is very subjective. Symptom experience is subjective. Uh, PROMs provide an objective measure of that subjective experience. And that subjective experience can be helpful to patients. They, patients are increasingly um, self-managing. Patients are increasingly using apps to monitor their health. And so clinically, for patients to collect serial PROM data over time and bring that to the clinic, it can help to inform discussions with their clinician. Uh, they can pinpoint which symptoms have got lower or, or higher scores uh, and where they need to focus uh, the interventions around managing these symptoms that would improve quality of life. Um, I know that we do collect uh, PROM data in the clinical environment. I think, again, I would put a call out to people listening to this to say, if you are a clinical researcher and you're collecting PROMs as part of the research, 
just make sure that that information gets over to the clinical context because I think often we have a, a phenomenal amount of PROM data which is meaningful that gets lost in the research records and we forget that it's got clinical value that could impact and change treatment for the patient. Anne-Marie, I think that's a perfect way to, to round up this podcast. Thank you for your comprehensive overview of the clinical and research uses of PROMs and for your insights into the challenges of undertaking this kind of research, as well as the, the future direction of PROM research. So once again, thank you very much.